Welcome to Wonderment from Wiltshire College and University Centre. We're recording this session during lockdown three, so the interview has been conducted remotely. On today's episode, we're welcoming Nick Bailey. Nick joined the Wiltshire Police Force in 2002 and in 2018 was at the epicentre of the Novichok incident in Salisbury. We're also joined by Lily Raynor, who is Deputy Head of Department for Health and Life Sciences at the college. Lily teaches on our courses in crime and criminology, as well as public services. And she's currently undertaking a PhD in relationship and sex education and young people's understanding of sexual consent. We are so excited to have you both on our podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we hope that our talk today is going to be really interesting as we're going to focus on mental health and resilience whilst throwing on sort of both of your experiences and maybe offering some advice to our listeners along the way. So without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Lily. Okay, um, so thank you, Fran. Uh, so Nick, first of all, um, I guess it's difficult to know where to start, but if we look at the beginning, um, do you want to tell us a bit about your career as a police officer? Because um, I yeah, understand absolutely. you said you've always wanted to be a police officer since you were sort of a teenager. So what drew you to that? I, I, to be honest with you, I, I'm not 100% sure. As a, as a kid, as a, when I was in school, it was something I was always interested in doing. Uh, I think probably what... Um, drew me to it first was the idea of driving around in fast cars um, and having that kind of authority, I think. Um, and then as I got older and more mature, I realised it wasn't, wasn't about that. It was actually about helping people. And that idea really appealed to me. Um, and my desire to be in the police really it started probably when I was 13, 14. And it, and it went through. I went to university um, but uh, in Gloucestershire, but I always... Uh, was always going to join the police um, and when I came out of uh, university Wiltshire Police opened their doors for recruitment and I just thought this is the perfect time to um, to give it a go and it kind of went from there and I was fortunate enough to, to, to be successful in getting me into the police and I started in the end of 2002 and spent my time pretty much in Salisbury um, working and, and working up the you know working all the different roles and uh, in uniform and out of uniform and that kind of thing so um it was a it was a, a fantastic is a fantastic job um and the, the the idea of helping and making a difference i know it sounds a bit cliche but it, it really is about that and i think that's why everyone joins they don't certainly don't join for the pay it's not about that it's about making a difference and uh, that is really why i joined i think making a difference is a is a key thing there isn't it because Essentially, most people know you as the police officer that first responded to the Novichok incident in Salisbury. Um, but before we talk about that one, have you sort of, with that helping aspect, are there any sort of like key moments that you've really enjoyed over the years that sort of, that have been major, major parts of your career as a police officer and sort of proved to you why you've really enjoyed it? Um, yes, so there have been, uh, it's been 18, I, I was in the police for 18 years, so naturally, with every, any police officer, there's going to be some really bad days and some really good days. Bad days are, you know, I mean, as a police officer, most of the time you are dealing with other people's grief and um, bad situations, and, and that is difficult, but that's why we do it, um, because we're there to uh, look after people and to help people that are struggling through something particularly difficult. Um, and yes, there have been a lot of very key moments for me, very positive moments for me. One particular, when I was a 
detective constable in the CID, and I um, dealt with a very, a particularly difficult uh, historic sexual offences case um, that had been uh, investigated a, a number of years ago, back in the 90s, and it had basically been uh, discarded by uh, the criminal justice system as, as being, they, they just didn't believe it, it had been the case, and it really had a massive impact on the family for a number of years and, and uh, I picked up that case again and, and I worked through it with the family and uh, had a good bond with the family by that time because I was um, working with them very closely uh, and talking to them a lot about about their situation, the experiences that they'd gone through and it resulted in a court case for the, the, the offender and he was sent to prison and I was able to go to the house where they were because they were waiting for the trial to, to finish and I went was able to go to their house and tell them that they were believed by the, the jury and by me uh, and it gave me a, a huge amount of good a good positive feeling to, to feel that I had actually done something really really positive they'd been through such a horrible horrible situation which had gone on for decades really um, that they had to live with um, and to give them that kind of positive outcome that it wasn't about the it wasn't about the the person being locked up so much although that had a big part of it it was about the fact that, that someone took it seriously and, and that they were believed and i think that had a big impact on them going forward and, and that was a that was a key moment for me and that wasn't that long ago i mean i've had so many other uh experiences in the police that have been really positive where you've been able to help people and, and people feel like they've been supported properly by us um it's a really it's a really worthwhile job to do um, and it does come with its difficulties and comes with its negativities but um you take that on board when you start when, when you join the job you know it's going to be difficult uh, and you're not going to be able to help everybody and please everybody but the people that you do please it makes a big difference to them and therefore makes a big difference to you because you know you're doing the job well yeah i mean i think you've raised some some really good points there in terms of you know your your day-to-day -day job is really unfortunately potentially dealing with everyone else's worst days of their yes. lives and you're and you're that person that you know like you said it's really important that people feel believed by the police um, yeah. and sometimes that's the biggest impact that that you as a police officer can have um so i think really the police maybe public understanding of where your job role sort of might end and where where cps and the in the judge and the jury take over it's not always understood where that where that line is um and potentially obviously you work incredibly hard to get a case ready but at the end of the day you've got to wait for the jury to find someone guilty don't you yeah it, it is difficult and uh you know and saying that you you you, you need to believe uh what they're saying you have to keep an open mind uh, you do but you have to uh invest time and uh, empathy and understanding uh, into the victims and the people that you deal with um, and whilst doing that whilst keeping an open mind and establishing the facts because we we, we work on facts we work on um, getting to the truth and, and gathering evidence because at the end of the day it goes to court and in the court system and the justice system that's what they work on they work on evidence beyond all reasonable doubt has this happened um, and so it's a, it's a difficult and it is a fine line of getting it right and it's incredibly frustrating when you invest a, a lot of time and effort with people to, to help them and 
get to that point because it's a lot of it takes a lot of work to get cases to court um mm. for it to, to collapse and sometimes it can collapse uh when you least expect it to when you think this is a you know this is a done deal this is going to happen and they're going to found, be convicted or found guilty um and it doesn't happen because of because of evidence issues or because um the evidence just wasn't strong enough for the jury to to make that kind of that definitive call it, it is really difficult it's frustrating but clearly it's more frustrating for the for the victims and the people that are going through that process because they invest a lot as well um and they spend a lot of time waiting for information waiting for updates waiting for you to finish your investigation waiting for a court case um and their kind of lives are put on hold for that day in court and um it either goes one way or the other and that, that kind of almost sometimes can define sometimes it can define how they move forward as well um, it gives them closure, but it's um, not always the way they want it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, like you said there, obviously, it's an incredible, incredibly difficult time for a victim going through the whole justice system process. Um, yeah, definitely. But the fact that you raise, you know, that police officers feel their frustration as well. And I think that just shows how much you care in, in your role as a police officer. Um, but obviously sort of what what became your maybe what you are most well known for as a police officer was the events in 2012 that essentially shook not just Salisbury but I think the whole country um so as far as I'm aware you sort of it was what would be classed as a, a normal day for a police officer get up and go to work um and then life for both you and your family has significantly changed since then um and although it's sort of quite unique, it's an incredibly uh, life-changing event that happened so unexpectedly. Um, so can you explain sort of maybe what the situation was and as much as you're sort of comfortable to do so, sort of those emotions that, that you went through in those early stages of, of the Novichok attack? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm quite happy to talk about it. It's um, it, And it was, as you say, it was a very normal day it was a sunday evening march the 4th 2018 i went into work and i was doing the normal things i was doing at work I was, in fact when when the call came in i was reviewing one of my colleagues cases um as to whether it was going to go to court or not and i heard on the radio that there was two people um semi-conscious slumped over on a bench in the maltings in salisbury and at that point it wasn't something necessarily that the CID were going to be involved in, but I'm incredibly nosy. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll have a wander down and, and just see. It could have been a whole number of uh, factors there. It could have been a whole number of issues there, but um, it wasn't necessarily at that point. We didn't we didn't have a clue what, what, what it was. Um, and it kind of stemmed from there. So I, I wasn't the first responder as such. There were other uh, uniformed, my other uniformed colleagues had arrived first. And when I arrived, they locked the scene down and um uh, the the two patients had been taken away to to hospital and it kind of again it was fairly kind of like routine for us it was just like trying to understand who they were and and what had happened and it could it, 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 it we also had the, the possibility that it wasn't a police matter at all it could have been just a medical emergency that didn't require our attention but you can't take that risk and uh, and you kind of look back at it now and you just think i'm so glad that we the police did what we did at that time because um uh, it, it turned into such a significant and serious and very, very unique. You used the word unique. We use that word a lot as well. Uh, very unique 
incident in Salisbury. And it kind of just went on from there. And it wasn't an even throughout the night when I was working on the case and we then found out who he was uh, and the, uh, the, the, which kind of opened up uh, other avenues to explore, uh, to investigate what was going on. But even at that point, we didn't know what had happened to them. And it wasn't for, for a while we didn't know what had happened to them. But I was one of the three officers that went into the house. We had to go and uh, check the, the house, um, which, again, is a very routine inquiry. We do it all the time. And uh, we went to the house. And at that point, uh, that's where I would have been contaminated with, with nerve agent. There's Novichok, as we, we learnt or told that it was. Uh, and... By that point, I didn't know that that had happened. It wasn't until I was in hospital a few days later. Uh, I was admitted into hospital because I was feeling particularly poorly. Um, that it then transpired from from blood tests and things, and and obviously the the work or the the tests that had been conducting on the the two uh, patients that had been taken in from the bench that they realised what it was, and it kind of then really spiraled spiraled out of control for me from that point. Um, so the actual incident on that Sunday evening. The trauma didn't come for me. The trauma didn't come from that. It was a very, uh, it was abnormal. It was a, it was normal routine inquiries that we're doing, just in a fairly abnormal incident. Um, but the the trauma for me was a prolonged trauma that then then started from the point that I was admitted into hospital and and the all of the unknowns that we we had from there, and that loss of control over the feeling of loss loss of control over your of your life, um, that's where it started to get very, very difficult. And I went through a number of emotions and I have done for the last three years, very varying different emotions. Um, I felt, uh, I, I remember feeling, feeling pure kind of panic and fear of the unknown because I'd been poisoned by this nerve agent and you just don't know where that's going to end up. And uh, that, that, that was a, a lot of fear there. Um, and a lot of guilt as well, because uh, later on down the line, while I was in hospital, my, my family were basically told they had to leave our house. And it was because I'd taken, accidentally taken nerve agent back to the house and contaminated the house. Um, and they had to leave because it wasn't safe. And, and there was a, a, an enormous feeling of guilt, you know, that I'd unknowingly done this and unintentionally done this. But I had this, this huge, overwhelming feel of guilt around that. Um, and then when my name became public property, so to speak, as in my name was released to the press and it went kind of around the world. It became global. I remember my uh, brother-in-law, he lives in Hong Kong and he remembers seeing my picture on one of the huge kind of electronic billboards in, in Hong Kong. And, and, and at that point, I shut down. I completely shut down from everything. I just had to focus on me and the family. I couldn't take in any more information, any more stress um it was just like a uh, it was like a brick wall that had been built up in front of me of stress uh, that i couldn't couldn't look over i couldn't look around and i couldn't knock over and it, and it just shut me down and it was a very strange feeling to feel to feel out of control and i think uh, whilst and, and you said whilst my the, the story and the cause of that is very very unique i think a lot of those emotions and those feelings that i had i think resonate with people that all over the, the country and all over the world that go through something traumatic. It took me a while to really kind of acknowledge and understand how I felt and, and accept it, um, which was like the, really the first stage for me or the epiphany for me for, for, for starting to kind of really truly heal.
so yeah, so it's been a you know I think I'm rambling, but it's been a very it's it been a very tricky time um, in hospital, and, and those kind of weeks and months after the incident uh, were very difficult for the family and I to kind of to to, to process and to understand. And I didn't really process it because I I, I kind of went into survival mode, I think, um, with it, and it took me a long time to to kind of really unpick it all, which I'm still doing now, I think, to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, you've talked about there about so, so many different sort of impacts that you felt um, initially and sort of as as the years have gone on and we're sort of, you know, almost, well, we're just over three years later. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a short time in terms of you healing as a person and sort of dealing with, with such a big event that not only affected you, but affected your family so significantly. Um, yes, and yeah, definitely. I think it's been clear sort of how open um, you've been about the effects on your mental health in considering where mental health has been something um, that that is starting to be spoken about, but it's still something that maybe people aren't too open. Um, so it's taken sort of, from, from my point of view, an incredible amount of courage to do so um, and speak about sort of your mental health and how it's affected you. Um, but maybe even more so for someone in in the sort of public services um, and as a police officer. So sort of how has it been sharing your experiences? Have you felt um, that it's it's had a positive impact on you? Um, and sort of what responses have you received from people? Yeah, it, it, I, I agree with everything you just said. I think um, it, it, it took me a long time to be open about it. Um, I, I had... Uh, a number of kind of therapy sessions and um, sessions with psychologists, um, which I, I guess I, I look back at it now and I feel like I was doing it because I knew I had to, and I and I paid it lip service to a certain extent. Um, but I wasn't tr I wasn't being honest with myself, and so those sessions, as useful as they were, they didn't um, they didn't do enough to get me through but what got me through or what started to get me through was when i was honest with myself and acknowledged how i felt embraced how i felt and realized uh, or said to myself it's okay to feel like that and as soon as i did that to myself i was able to kind of translate that to my wife and my family who kind of sat by for a lot of it uh, and and kind of watched me suffer and couldn't help because they didn't know how to because I didn't know how I was feeling properly or, or was suppressing how I was feeling or or trying to kind of shut off how I was feeling um and uh, and it was difficult for them and obviously they were struggling because they'd been through the same kind of experience I had or or, or similar experience I had they shared that experience um and it wasn't until I was really I really embraced it and acknowledged it within me did it start to become easier? And I was able to then, because I was honest with myself, I was able to be more honest and express how I was feeling with my wife um, and my family. And uh, it started to started to make a little bit more sense. Um, and it, I realized actually, it's okay if I'm feeling really, really numb. And that's one of the feelings I had uh, going through uh, uh, the depression that I had and, and taking antidepressants, which I still take now to keep me kind of, to keep me on a level. Um, and uh, I, 
I felt numb and I felt like I couldn't love anything and I certainly couldn't love myself. Um, and that's a really horrible feeling when you don't fully understand it or you're, you, you have a mindset where you're choosing not to understand it. And it's, and when I was then honest with myself and acknowledged it, it started to become easier and I was able to be a lot more open and honest with my wife and explain to her how I was feeling so that she then understood that I was having good days or bad days. And it started to just click into place, that kind of acknowledgement and that, and embracing it um, and feeling vulnerable, but understanding why you feel vulnerable. And I, and I don't believe vulnerable is, vulnerability is a sign of weakness. I think it takes a lot of courage, as you said, it takes a lot of courage to to be open about how you're feeling and open about your kind of your your perceived vulnerabilities, because it's not a weakness. It's it's a sign that you need help, but it's a, it's a sign of strength to be able to do that in the first place. I think as well. So. Um, yeah, I think it was it was tricky, but I've started to come out the other side. Am I there yet? No, I'm not there yet. It's still, you know, three years for some people sounds like a long time, um, but it's not. And it takes you've got to you've got to accept that it it takes as long as it takes. There's no blueprint for for this kind of thing. It's it's a personal feeling that you have, or the, your you know your personal um, struggles are are in you and it takes as long as it takes and you kind of have to accept that that it's it you will feel better again um but it might take a year two years it might take five years but you do start to feel better again and when you, once you can start kind of accepting all these things that's when you start to look you start to look forward more and start to be a bit more positive um than being in in that kind of hole that i felt i was in for, for so long I mean, you raise so many sort of like uh, points there, especially sort of, you know, like one thing I think I take from that is about that there is no blueprint that this could, this takes as long as it does. And you have to, yeah. you have to be aware of that and be open, open to that. Um, <clears throat> I think through, through some of like reading and things that I've done before, I think one of my, my most interesting quotes that I've ever read is about when you look at those individuals suffering with mental health illnesses is the lack of hope whereas you could go into any hospital and even the most physically sick individuals can still have hope but that yeah. that could be missing a lot with with mental health um and you break a bone you know you've got so many weeks to heal whereas you you don't get that information around your your mental health um, and some people, like you said, three years might be enough. That sounds like a long time. To others, we need longer. Yeah, definitely. Um, and sort of, it's interesting, sort of at the moment, we're noticing that a lot more of our public service students and our criminology, um, that mental health is coming up in the content that we have to teach and they have to learn. Um, and things such as like resilience and techniques are coming up, um, especially... I think the understanding around the fact that it's okay to talk about the impact that their job may have on them one day, um, you know, like yourself as a police officer. So um, the first question I think leading out of that is maybe there's a little bit of stereotyping around public services and policing and around mental health um, in that, you know, 
stereotypically maybe there's a weakness in expressing emotions but I completely agree with you that it's a strength you know the moment that you you ask for help is you showing how strong you have been and that you have the strength to to ask for help um but what what is the support like as a as a police officer or as someone that is served in the public services sort of what what is that support like for your mental health I think uh, certainly in my case, it was it was exceptional. They did everything that they could reasonably do to help me. The problem that they, I guess, the problem that they had uh, that we had to, to, with that was that I didn't know what it is that I needed and wanted. Um, and so it's not like uh, like you said before about breaking a leg. That's fairly straightforward in terms of. Uh, time rehabilitation time time to heal and and what it is that needs to be done to fix that um, but with mental health is a lot it's a lot more complex and it's very much the individual who has to kind of acknowledge and accept what it is that they have how they feel and what it is that they're gonna they think they're gonna need and sometimes you don't and and I didn't and I I had like I said before I had uh I had psycho psych uh, sessions with a psychologist um quite early on um they started quite early um, and uh, it was really, really good, and it was really helpful to a to, to a point. But um, it can only take. I felt like it could only take me so far. Uh, and I also got quite tired of talking about how I felt, and I felt like I was then just doing it as a routine, as opposed to kind of like feeling it. Um, and it didn't. In the end, it didn't. It didn't help me as much as I wanted it to. What helped me, as is what I said before about. Kind of having that that epiphany moment where I, I I embraced how I felt and wasn't scared of it and acknowledged it, but I think in the in the certainly in the police I can't talk for any other emergency services. Although I anticipate that they're probably roughly roughly the same, um, that they do it's getting better and they do their very best to help and it, the awareness around mental health is getting better that stigma that's always been attached to mental health and certainly in mental health uh, around emergency services workers and, and the military and that kind of thing where you're deemed to be this strong person that's there to fix the problems and then move on to the next traumatic incident where you're there to fix that problem is that 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 takes its toll and you can't underestimate that all these people that do these jobs they are human beings with their own demons with their own issues whether it be in home whether it be at work and it and it can take its toll and, and it and it's a tricky one to kind of unpick but we get we're getting better i just think there's a lot that there's a lot more that we can do and i think around emotional intelligence i think is the key or i certainly believe it's the key to really kind of understanding and being fully aware of the impact that that trauma trauma can have on people and, and how it manifests itself in various different ways and how long it can take to manifest. Um, and I think we could do a lot more work around emotional intelligence within emergency services for leaders, but also for the front line to kind of help them do that embracing moment that I was able to do. Yeah, I think, you know, you've you sort of said about emotional intelligence and that I think that's a key one um, in terms of of techniques and, and what works um, for a lot of people sort of with with mental health illnesses. Um, but one thing is 
I think that one of the misconceptions we see is about people expect that mental health has to start with a major trauma um, and everyone's yeah. got different expectations on what how significant that trauma can be um, but obviously as we fingers crossed uh, start to come out of sort of these COVID restrictions um, we've had an unprecedented year you you couldn't have got anyone I don't think to predict how this last year has been um, which means there are more people suffering with mental health illnesses or challenges um, whether that's the impact of the restrictions or the worry into entering sort of what is possibly going to be a bit of a new world um, so from what you've learned on your journey, um, what would your advice be in terms of maybe techniques that that you think of works that others could use? Um, well, I suppose firstly, I would want to say that comparing your trauma to other people's trauma is is completely the wrong thing to do. And I say that purely because people have done that with me before. You know, they said, oh, I've gone through something particularly bad, but but nothing compared to what you've been through. That 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 is unhelpful to yourself because you are comparing, you start to compare your trauma and then your feelings with other people. And that's, uh, it's useless really, because it doesn't matter how other, somebody, other, somebody else is feeling because they are not you and they are, they are not in you uh, and they can't understand how you feel. You have to do that yourself. So the, uh, and the, also believe that the trauma, um, in, in a way, the trauma that the cause of how you feel is it's not insignificant. It's not insignificant. What I mean is, is it doesn't it doesn't really matter what the trauma is. It's how you own it. It's how you deal with it. So there's only a handful of people that can share the trauma that I've been through. But those out of those handful of people, they may have dealt with it or felt very different things. So it's a very personal mental health and, and trauma and how you, you cope with it is a very diff, different thing for everybody. Um, and comparing yourself with other people who've been through, whether it be similar trauma or whether it be through uh, through their, how they feel about it, it can be it can be helpful in places, but in other places it can't because you start to compare yourself and and compare how how well they're doing or or how not well they're doing and and start to think well should I be should be I should I be at that point in time with how I'm feeling and and like I said before there's no blueprint to that it's how it impacts on you as a person how it impacts on your personality how it impacts on your emotions um, and I think for me. The, the key for me, as I've said before, is, is that moment when I embraced it um, and I didn't hide from my numbness. I didn't hide from my what felt like a vulnerability. I didn't hide from how rubbish I was feeling. I embraced it and I didn't want it to define me as a human being or define me negatively as a human being. I wanted to, to be upfront with it and acknowledge it and be open with myself uh, and and give my cut myself some slack as well kind of forgive yourself for feeling bad or not having a good day because everybody i think everybody has a ceiling everybody has a point in which they can be pushed over over the edge and a lot of people never get to that point and a lot of people do and it can creep up on you um 
with what is deemed to be the most insignificant thing, but it's but it's all the subconscious trauma and all the subconscious emotions that you've kind of bottled up and dealt with for a very long period of time that that has kind of pushed you up and up and up and up and then one thing can push you over where you then start to, to struggle with your mental health um, and it's kind of just being emotionally aware of 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 how you feel and and embracing it i think i think that's what helped for me but again it might not help for other people other people might find huge amounts of benefit in 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 talking to others that have gone through things and that's why you know you have like those counseling sessions that's why you have those group conversations with people that share trauma because they they start to understand how they feel um and i think it's just a very unique thing but i just think you have to be very open-minded and uh, uh open-minded about how you feel and how you how long you think it's going to be before you can start to feel like you can come out the other side of it yeah, I mean, I think one of the, again, one of the key points you raise there is how individual mental health illness can be um, from one person to the next. And even if they've been through a similar experiences, how you react um, and how your body reacts can be can be very different to the person next to you. Um, but what I think is really evident is essentially how resilient you've shown we we tend to see the the words mental health and resilience sort of coming together um and from my point of view i think you show incredibly how resilient you have been um but what what does resilience mean to you and sort of you know how have you pulled on on that resilience um i think uh, resilience is a key word for me as well and and that's one of the first things that i noticed had significantly been impacted um, by all of this i felt like i couldn't cope with anything i couldn't cope with day-to-day things i remember going into a supermarket for the first time after i'd been out of hospital and i felt like i couldn't cope with being in there with all these people i felt so on edge and i put that down to like a, a kind of a resilience and it sounds a silly thing to think about resilience by going into a supermarket but that's when i really first noticed that i I felt like I couldn't cope with all the things that I coped with before. And, and in my time in the police, I, my resilience was, I, I considered my resilience to be very, very high. I, I was, I had a lot of responsibility. I was um, a DS, a detective sergeant on, in reactive CID. We're dealing with a lot of difficult things. I was doing uh, on-call duty. So I was being called up at three o'clock in the morning because of a serious assault or a serious sexual offence or something like that. And being called upon to make key decisions um, because uh, the protocol was that they uh, you had to do that, but uh, you were deemed to be the expert. Um, and that's a very lonely place to be. And you have to show a lot of resilience for that. I was an, as a negotiator, so talking people through crisis and, you know, suicide prevention and that kind of thing and and it and, and i felt like my my resilience was 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 well up there and to, to have it to feel like it having been pulled from underneath your feet um was a really horrible horrible feeling it's a horrible experience to kind of go through which people go through all day every day um, regardless of what what it is that's happened people have that kind of that feeling of control and resilience just dragged from underneath their feet just like that and it can go so so quickly and it did with me it went really quickly do i think that i've shown incredible resilience i don't i don't know um uh, it's kind of you to say that 
you think I have? I, I, I don't know. I, I did that thing a couple of years ago where I, or, or kind of when it, when this first started, I did that thing, which I've said not to do, um, which was to try and compare how other people might deal with this and say, well, you know, I've been through this and some people might have dealt with it, uh, got through it a lot quicker and might dealt it, dealt with it a lot better. Other people might not have done. And I started to do that and that was no good for me. Um, uh, but it's it, it, resilience is a it, it's so key and it was so key for me and i'm and i'm building on my resilience like i can feel consciously that i'm now building on my my resilience now uh, but it took a long time um, and it's a it feels like a very lonely place when you when you feel like you you've lost that or it's been kind of taken from underneath you yeah i think it's interesting how we maybe we see resilience in other people easier than we see it in ourselves um, and interestingly, us as a department here at the college, we we did a staff training session on resilience. And the way we took it was, it's very different per person. Um, and actually, so we went down the route of of looking at us as team members of, of how we've, we feel we've all maybe been resilient in our lives. Yeah. And we've got, we've got ex- um, people that have worked for the police service and we've got military and we've got outdoor experts we've got some where we've got more maybe of an academic background and it was incredibly um wholesome to see how we all saw it differently and i think it's a bit like you know you know we saw someone she didn't class herself as resilient but actually the last few years have been tough um being diagnosed with cancer we've got someone else who's served a number of tours for the RAF. Um, we've got another one that, you know, his resilience was the fact that he really enjoys throwing himself off of mountains and climbing down um, ravines and things like that. Whereas for myself, it wasn't anything maybe a big event. Um, it was just maybe how life is, is planned out. Um, and you never know what's around the corner. Sort of, I sit here today quite humble in the fact that I've got a job that I really wanted as a teenager. And I think you probably felt the same when you were a police officer, when when that's what you really want. Um, but my there was an expectation that that was going to stop because I had, I had a child as a teenager. Um, and then there's those stereotypes just around that. And regardless of what that stereotype is, it can really affect us and knock knock that resilience mm, yeah. um and sort of building on that you know we all face these different challenges and they could be like you said at home in your personal life um they could be at work etc so as we as we move forward and we look at maybe new police officers coming through um and we consider the challenges particularly looking at what's been going on across the country in the last few weeks um for police what advice would you give to any aspiring police officer? I think um, you have to, I, I would say you have to be true to yourself. You have to really, truly understand what it is and why you want to become a police officer, because it is a particularly difficult job. Like like many other jobs are, it's particularly difficult. And the attention that the police gets, certainly at the moment as well, is is very tricky it's very difficult you've really got to look in yourself and see what it is why it is that you want to be a police officer 
and understand that and be comfortable with that um, and be safe in the knowledge that it's okay to be affected by the things that you're going to see that's fine you don't have to be a robot you don't have to just put on this facade of being the strongest person in the room because you've been to you've dealt with three four sudden deaths or had to deliver two or three death messages in one day that takes its toll you have to be aware that, that it might not feel like it at the time but these little things can chip away at your resilience and can chip away at your emotions and talk to people um, about it talk to your your colleagues talk to your peers talk to your friends family talk to your your sergeant or your inspector about how you feel because they'll want to know because they're there to look after you and have your back and they'll want to know how you're feeling um and just be yeah just have that kind of that that thought of the emotional intelligence around understanding how you feel and understanding how others may may feel and and don't be afraid to to ask for help don't be afraid to to, to break down and cry because you've had to go to a a cop death or something like that because there it's a really difficult thing to do yes you're a police officer that's part of your duty but you're a human being and uh it it's it's upsetting all the things you're going to see are upsetting it's just how you deal with it professionally and then how you deal with it outside of that profession that's the key because um it can chip away at you and it can and it can do damage and nobody wants to see damage caused to people in that way it's 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 a horrible place to be um it's just about being open and honest with yourself i think yeah i think that's that's some really um great advice to sort of give anyone um young or, or older that's thinking of, of of aspiring to be a police officer um you know that openness and being able to talk and allowing yourself to have those feelings um so really now it's back to you uh nick as we sort of pull to a close with this what's next for you um that's a, if you, it's that's a big a question really isn't it <laughs> it is it is a big question so i think um when i i left the, i was i left the police in october last year and i wanted to give myself six months or so for a, for a couple of reasons but firstly was to kind of reset to to grieve to a certain extent for the job that I loved that I wanted to do for the rest of my kind of working life which I then then I then lost um, and I and I had a sense of grieving for that which um, was fine and, and a lot of people said that that's probably going to be the case I wanted to give myself enough time to to get through that and come out the other side um, I am looking to in a way treat what happened to me as a bit of a of a gift it's a bit of it's been a rubbish gift. Um, however, if I can flip it on its head, not let it define me in a negative way and actually use my experiences with my story and uh, what I learned about myself, about my own mental health, my own resilience, the way I handle things, my own emotions, if I can use that to help others, um, I think that is a, an opportunity that I'd be foolish to, to, to not pursue. Um, I joined the police because I wanted to help people. I knew that that was why I wanted to do it. And I still have that kind of ingrained in me. So if I could talk to a hundred people and one person walk away from that, that talk thinking I haven't been what he's, he's been through, but I share the same feelings around my own trauma. And now I understand them a little bit better. And I understand that that's quite a common feeling. 
uh, and they can walk away with their head held a little bit higher, that's that's just, to me, that's just gold dust. And if I can do that in some way through talks or through a, a book or some kind of consultancy work, that's that's my plan. That's my vision. I just have to kind of understand that, the, the, that there's a big, big, brave new world outside of policing. And I have to kind of embrace that and, um, and look at new opportunities. But there are opportunities for me to do something potentially good. And, and, and that's what I would like to do. Oh, I look forward to seeing what you do. Um, and if you do go down the, the book route, um, I imagine it will be on the reading list for a lot of uh, public services and criminology students across the country. Oh, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. No, maybe. You don't, you don't know. You don't know. But like I said, you know, if, yeah. I, if, I, if I wrote something and uh, again, if one person read it and uh, and took something positive from it, then, then that's a good thing. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, so the final thing for me is I hear that you're a really big supporter of the Salisbury Hospital Stars Appeal. Um, yes. So do you want to give them a quick plug before we finish? I'd, I'd love to. So I became a very proud patron of Salisbury, uh, of Stars Appeal for Salisbury Hospital. Um, I did a marathon back in 2019 where I raised some money for them because for, for intensive care because they effectively saved my life and I wanted to give something back. And, and it kind of get, went from there. I then did another half marathon and raised some more money for them. And, and they invited to me to, to become a patron, which I wholeheartedly accepted. It's a, I'm very proud to be that. Stars Appeal are, are incredible. They, they do so many extra things for the hospital that, that isn't covered by by kind of central funding those those kind of little the, the cherry on the top of the cake kind of services and facilities and and uh things that they can do and they kind of they can put that platinum service on on the care that the hospital can uh, and provide and, and do so and they do it so well and we're very lucky to have sorts of Distance hospital it's such an amazing service that we've got there on our doorstep and the stars of hill just make it better but they don't do that without you know the, the support from the public as well you know that they get donations they get money sent to them people raise money for them all the time and and so they can't do what they do without that as well um but they are they are they're incredible people that, that selflessly work to to just add that platinum service um for the people in the hospital for the, the patients and the staff and everybody that visits it um, it's amazing what they do. I'm, I'm so proud to be part of it as well. Okay, thank you so much, Nick and Lily. That was um, such an amazing discussion to listen to and hopefully our listeners agree. Um, if you have been inspired by our podcast and you're interested in public services or criminology, then you can check out our website, which is um, www.wiltshire.ac.uk and you can speak to Lily or a member of our team about your options. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for the next podcast from Wiltshire College and University Centre. It's free to download and listen to.